This is The Guardian. If you are at Kabul airport with your children and with your husband who's maybe served with, you know, the coalition forces trying to get out to save your life, doesn't matter that sitting in a bookshop in Australia there's a book about two people who have been affected by trauma. No, it doesn't matter to them and I wouldn't imagine that it does. But to the collective understanding of what people might experience, does it matter? Yeah, I think it can be an important tool to understanding. Hi, I'm Paul Daly and this is Book It In. This week I'm talking to Marion Frith who has released a fantastic first novel, Here in the After. It's a disturbing, heartbreaking, powerful and very beautiful story of life after loss and human resilience amid trauma. Marianne has packed a whole lot into this elegantly written novel. It gave me an awful lot to reflect on, really. The flip side of Anzac mythology, that is human frailty and trauma that we don't as a nation discuss. What Australia and its allies achieved or not during 20 years of war fighting in Afghanistan. How we do or don't look after our veterans and the gender politics of a very complex relationship that she's weaved. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Marion, um, Here in the After is a novel of great emotional range, exploring the really complex and at times fraught relationship between two people with post-traumatic stress disorder. The primary characters are Anna, who is 62 and the survivor of a domestic terror attack, and Nat, who's a 35-year-old Australian Army Afghanistan veteran. Most journalists say they want to write a novel, but very few ever do so. Um, I often think that's because in many ways journalism writing, which focuses on interpreting primary factual research, is almost anathema to creating prose fiction and working from the imagination. Marion, what did you have to learn and develop as a writer to make this book? Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a, a real jump between being a journalist, I used to be a journalist, where everything is about facts and verification and honouring sources 
and a work of fiction where everything's made up. So you go from pursuing the truth as a journalist to actually just fabricating anything you like as a writer. That was hard for me to let go of those reins, to realise that actually this was about imagination, this was made up, it didn't have to be true. And so it was a challenge actually to let go of those earlier disciplines and realise that this would take a completely different set of sort of skills really. And it was very liberating once I reached that point that I could say what I like. In order to write this book, you really had to inhabit two very different worlds of trauma and then bring them together into a narrative. I'm wondering, and I'm sure a lot of readers would be, why did you want to write about PTSD and trauma? I'm really interested in trauma in that I'm really interested in the capacity of humans and individuals to survive experiences that most of us can't even imagine, you know, and and that notion that people can go down these shockingly dark tunnels, some come out the other side and some don't. And I wasn't interested, this is my first novel, as you said, and I wasn't interested in writing a light book. I mean, I read light books, but the sort of stories I like are ones that do explore that darkness and that depth of the human condition So I wanted to try and step into that. I wanted to try and walk in the footsteps of people who'd been through something really, 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 really shocking and try and imagine how they would come through that. I really wanted to dig deep within myself and dig deep within my characters. Marion, what sense of responsibility did you feel about going there to that trauma in terms of offering hope to people who may be afflicted with PTSD, given that we know that so many people who are, especially veterans, end up feeling so hopeless, tragically, that they suicide. I mean, we now even have a Royal Commission into veteran suicide. Yeah, I felt I felt a real responsibility. And again, I needed to sort of um, look at that disconnect between a factual piece and a piece of fiction. So, of course, I felt a responsibility to honour the experiences of people who have as military veterans gone to war and then come back and 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 to Anna the other character who who has been through a siege and survived um but I wasn't telling a true story you know I wasn't telling the story of an actual individual and so I was aware that the, that a story like this could be triggering for a lot of people of course it could but I was also aware that I wanted to take them into that place that they inhabit yep here it is, here's the terrible place you're sitting, and to give them a glimmer of hope. And I think there's um, there's a phrase in there somewhere where Anna is actually talking about getting the first little crack of hope across the darkness and imagining there might be a way across that. So putting hope into it was very important, but I think hope's a real thing. I think it is there in any experience. I just think for a lot of people, especially some vets, They've lost sight of it, you know, and I think our role is to help them find that. So, yes, I felt a responsibility to honour the experience and I felt a responsibility to offer hope, but I think hope is a real thing. So that actually wasn't a, a misconstruct. Why was there hope for these characters, Anna and Nat? It sounds very glib and trite to say it, but I do believe that while there's life, there's hope. And I do believe that while there's love, there's hope. And so in the context of the story, I think both Anna and Nat had those. They had survived these experiences, so they were alive. They had their physical health and they did have love. They did have love in their life. And so there was something to swim towards for both of them. There were relationships that neither were prepared to give up on. In Anna's case, her family, even though she was unable to sort of 
get joy from those at the moment, except for the little the little little Ollie, the grandson. And for Nat, there was his wife who was actually growing new life, who was pregnant. So there was hope. They just had to find it. So I think it's easy looking on externally going, oh, you've got a lot to live for. But they actually both did. And so in the story, I wanted to take them to the place where they could see those glimmers of light. And as I say, who knows? Who knows how it plays out? Who knows what their life looks like? And I deliberately don't deliver a verdict on what their life looks like. And I think as long as there is some empathy towards a person in the world, there will always be hope. You know, what is hope? Hope is the belief that things can get better. I mean, there is hope in most circumstances. I mean, some people can't see it or believe there isn't any, and that's how we get to suicide, and that's why we really need to be focused on supporting veterans so they don't lose sight of that, so that they believe there always is an option to create a better life. But hope does exist, I believe. Just often people need help to find it. Did you give much consideration to who might be reading the book, like who your readers might end up being? Yeah, I did. And I think I think I realised into it that this would probably be a, um, a primarily female readership purely because it is an emotional story. I mean, there's a lot of other action in it, but it is about emotions and it is going deep into emotions. But I also have had feedback from men um, who have read it with whom it's really resonated. So I was thinking this would be a woman's book and a lot of readers have been women, but I can see that it is moving into a male space and where I really want it to land is with, um, if not veterans themselves who might not be, you know, interested in a novel, but certainly their families who might find something from this and realise that they're not alone in this sort of horror you know, because you can't be what you can't see, right? So if you're struggling as a family or as a vet and there's really nothing in a popular media that you can reference, I think that's a difficulty. So I hope that with this story you go, oh, I see, yeah, someone gets it and here we are. Um, in Australia, politicians ever since Billy Hughes in World War One have sought to hitch some unique national identity to Anzac, you know, with its supposedly unique traits of resilience, resourcefulness, egalitarianism, mateship, but they've never been much interested in, in that flip side, the legacies of war, the addiction, the domestic violence, what I've called in the past the uneaten dinners of Anzac yeah. and the trauma. What got you so interested in the difficult legacies of war, the, these real stories? Well, I've always been interested in the human story behind the big story. I mean, I'm interested in that, that how any policy um, actually distills down to an individual person. I've always been interested in this notion of war, that we send people off to fight. They go, not always willingly, you know, they may have been conscripted, and then they come back and we have an expectation as a society that somehow they'll leave all that muck over there, they won't, you know, disturb Auntie Flo or whatever with those stories, and they'll get on with it. And what a what a horrific injustice that is to expect that. So you take young people, you give them a mission, you train them to kill, you sent them off, and then they just come home to nothing. And we've seen that repeatedly, you know, throughout history, that there is not 
there is not the support. I think that's absolutely changing now with sort of contemporary vets, but obviously, you know, things like the Royal Commission will expose the real holes in that too. I just wanted to look at that. I mean, I have military stories in my family background. You know, my grandfather was injured at Gallipoli and we've got his, um, you know, the diary he kept while he was lying on the beach waiting to, to get to the hospital ship. Um, he died of his injuries not long after he got home. You know, how do you do that? How do you come back to Sydney with one leg and brush your hair and, you know, get on with that? My father was a Kokoda, so we've got these two iconic sort of battles in our family blood, if you like, um, psychologically slaughtered by it, I think it's fair to say. And, again, how do you do that? Like, you know, you're talking about World War One there. Like, you know, these young men, they sort of, came off the farms and out of the post office and out of dad's furniture business and climbed up those cliffs and then came home. So I think it's, why don't we want to look at that? We don't want to look at it because it's ugly, it's scary, it's it's frightening. I mean, we're asking huge things of individuals while the rest of us just, you know, sit at home and channel surf. It's been ever thus, you know, so... Can you tell us a little more about your dad? Yeah, so my father was um, a brilliant man, a brilliant scientist, and he went to the Middle East and, and Kokoda as a young man, fresh off the, the farm almost, you know, a Northern Rivers boy, and um, had horrific experiences of which he never spoke except once on a um, scientific field trip apparently up in um, the top end. He spoke to um, his colleagues, never spoke, was very... Um, he had PTSD, I mean, written all over him now in a day when, you know, so we'd moved on from shell shock, which is what we called it in World War One. There was no words for just basically being a, you know, a difficult, grumpy bastard, really. And, and that's what it was. And so that manifested itself as a, um, a sort of a family system dynamic, really, you know, and I have really sort of poignant images of him sitting in the lounge room watching the Anzac parade, wouldn't go to it, you know, and just this vibe around that, you know, this vibe around watching this and and the memories that could never be spoken. And, um, yeah, so it was a sort of a pervasive feeling really that had no words, no had context, but now as a grown-up I know what it was. Mm. One of the things I think you do superbly um, in this book is Chronicle the constant fear of that unexploded emotional ordinance you have to negotiate um, when living with a person with PTSD. Um, you know, you see it with the interactions between Anna and her kids and Nat and his wife. Where did you draw that from? I drew that from from research, really, from listening to stories, from from delving into, um, you know, first-person experiences and um, accounts and, and vision and listening. Um, and it wasn't hard for me to understand that. I guess I've seen that in my own life in various scenarios, you know, in my own, in other people's situations, you know, that understanding of sort of eggshells. And and I think it's real. I think it's absolutely real when someone has been traumatised and are no longer in full control of their reactions. Um, yeah, so it was really listening to people who had survived that and people who had been the perpetrators of that, if you like, who'd been the broken puppy that, that in retrospect, were able to have great insight into their behaviour and the impact it had on the, the people that loved them and were trying to love them in really difficult circumstances. Most journalists try to write 
a novel about trauma would, I'd reckon, go straight to the primary sources. They'd go to veterans' organisations and try and talk to people with um, PTSD. But you deliberately avoided doing that. Do you want to explain your rationale there? It wasn't a, um, a quick decision And, of course, when I first started to look into this and what I wanted to do, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I need to talk to people. But I quickly came to the conclusion that I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to talk to people who had survived something horrendous and take their story, have them offer their story to me. And you know, as a journalist, people will give you their stories and they will give them to you very generously and very openly with a a feeling of trust behind that. I'm giving you this story because I want it out there and I'm trusting you, Paul, Marion, who I don't know, to do the right thing by it. I didn't want that responsibility. I felt it was too onerous. I felt it was potentially disrespectful to take someone's story and then go, oh, no, actually, I, I... I need to fiddle around with this and I want them to feel that and I want it to be a bit more extreme. I want to leave that out. I felt that could be damaging more than disrespectful and triggering. So I wanted to go another way. So the way I went was I threw myself into um, open source material and there's so much of it. You know, thank you, Mr Internet. Um, There is so much material out there of veterans speaking about their experience, about their families. There's so much video vision. I mean, the War Memorial, you know, I know there's some controversy about um, its display at the moment, but, you know, fabulous. You sit in that place and you have these voices around you. So I did that and I would have listened to hundreds of veterans and their families talking. And so my characters became an amalgamation of all of that and I was freed then of the responsibility of sort of hurting or offending anyone. I think it was more effective, actually, because I didn't want one story. I wanted a sort of a more generic story, if you like. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So the the novel is set largely in Sydney. Um, that's where the relationship unfolds. And and I guess as a Sydney resident, I think of a terror attack happening in you know a uh, a premises in in the city. And and I'm going to go right o Lint Cafe. And straight away, I'm thinking of that day when that terrible thing happened. I wonder, you know, how hard you pondered that and whether it was in any way avoidable to to trigger people who might kind of think about that episode. Yes, no, of course not. And it's really interesting that, of course, not impossible to trigger people. I was well aware of that. But also it's really interesting because quite a few people sort of immediately jumped to Lint and that horrific day. It wasn't my starting point, which sounds strange, because I was in Sydney 
that day. I was in the city and I remember being really, really frightened and sort of just wanting to get out of the city and running across Hyde Park and, and jumping on a bus. I wanted to go home. And um, another man had jumped on the bus and it turned out, you know, we sat in the front seat and we got talking and it turned out he was... Um, a lawyer and his colleagues were in the siege. So he was, it was a very, it was one of those moments in your life where you really connect in a sort of moment of fear. Let me say the siege then actually had nothing to do with me and so its pain and its fear wasn't mine. I was more activated to write this story from the spate over the past few years of the terrorist attacks in Europe, you know, so I actually didn't have lint in my mind at all. I was watching all that stuff happening in Europe where the attacks were so random, were actually directly terrorist linked, you know, rather than um, the motivation in lint, which in hindsight we think was more mental illness than sort of an active terrorist as such, even though it was a terrorist incident, if you know what I mean. Um, So, yeah, of course I was aware of that. But I think when you're going to write a story and you want to write a big story, you're going to touch people and some people are going to be triggered and some people are going to be motivated and at the end of the day, isn't that what storytelling is, you know? So I didn't intentionally set out to hurt anybody at all. Um, But, yeah, I'm aware that a story like this, and I've had a lot of feedback from people who have been triggered, not that they've been in a terrorist attack, not that they've been to war, but it sort of triggered their own deep pain about other stuff. So, yeah, of course I was aware of of that pull. So one of the wonderful and and occasionally um, disarming things that happens when you send a book out into the world is what comes back at you. Um, And I'm wondering if you've heard from many people, many trauma sufferers, and what they said about here and the after, and veterans too, What if, or, or their families. It is true, isn't it? You write a book and then you send, you, well, you'd know this better than most, and suddenly you have this dawning, we're like, oh, people are going to read it. Like <laughs> I just thought it was a project alone in a study. Oh, I see. Other people are going to look at it. That was a bit confronting when I realised that. I've got to say I've had really moving feedback. Really, for me as a writer, really fabulous feedback. And one woman said to me who has lived a life with uh, someone who had come back from um, the Middle East and and had PTSD, how did you get into my lounge room? How were you sitting in my house for all those years? How did you know? So that was really beautiful for me. And other people, as I say, who haven't experienced this particular trauma but have experienced trauma sexual abuse survivors, other people have been really um, moved to feel that I have been able to express, which I'm very proud about, um, an understanding of what they've been through. Mm. Let's talk a little about the characters. Um, How conversant do you feel with Anna as compared to writing a 35-year-old man who's who's a war veteran? I imagine, I imagine that was difficult. Well, can I say no, it wasn't difficult. I love I love young men. I'm really interested in them. I, I know a lot of young men. I love I know You're a mother of them. I'm a mother of them indeed. Very nice ones, let me say. And I know young men who have been in the military and served. I know I know them. Was it hard? No, not really. I just really drew on my imagination and uh, as I say, I know young men, I've, I've worked with them, I've lived with them, I 
socialise with them. And I just sort of tried to pull into all those observations and conversations and sort of spew it back out. And once I stepped into that, I got quite sort of, I felt really comfortable being Nat. Like I I felt I knew Nat, you know. And uh, yeah, she's sort of closer to my age. And um, in some ways, I think writing a a person that, you know, could be misconstrued as you is a bit more challenging because you've got to put a few more boundaries up, you know, so her house can't look like yours and she can't talk like you talk and because otherwise it's, you know, becoming too self-focused. So in some ways I found that a bit more difficult to make sure that I didn't let myself spill too much into her. One of the other things I really like about the novel is the way you negotiate gender. There's a very evident sexual tension between Nat and Anna that almost ends in the act. Uh, In a way, in a few short pages, you explore, I think I said to you, you know, what is effectively the truth about cats and dogs, you know. (laughs) Um, Can you explain what happens and why you wrote that in? why you wanted to explore that space yeah so them. yeah so what you're talking about is Anna is an older woman she's a, she's an attractive strong vibrant older woman and Nat is a, a young guy as you say 35 incredibly fit um, good looking although that's a subjective thing and and a really interesting complex man so these people develop a friendship that is very intense so it goes out of the boundaries of the friendships in the rest of their life in that it's very intense it's very focused they come to need each other and to depend on one another and so of course within that well i say of course um there are sort of confused feelings i think they're both confused about how they've come to depend on each other i think anna at one point contemplates oh if i was younger would this become sexual but she's older and through her maturity has a wisdom to actually not go there like that that is a fleeting thought it never takes hold it never takes seed i mean she can see disaster written all over it if she let herself you know sexually fantasize about this guy so it actually doesn't happen for her But he, as a young bloke who has these really intense feelings and obsession, does want it to become sexual or thinks he wants it to become sexual. And I think that that's not an unlikely response for a young, virile, active young man who is feeling feelings he doesn't have for anyone else in his life, not even his wife with whom he is sexual, about a woman that that he believes therefore these must be sexual feelings and and tries to step them over into that space you know I'm feeling all this I've got this blood rushing through my body about her I've got to make a move and um I think that's a um probably how that would play yeah you're a young man Paul I was (laughs) well I do think that perhaps that is the way it might have played for someone who was (laughs) having as much difficulty um, reigning in his emotions as as Nat, I, th- I thought it was um, I thought it was really well handled. I must say, um, one thing I didn't know about you, and you know we've known you for a pretty long time, is that you're a family mediator, and writers are bowerbirds. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they absolutely always look everywhere when it comes to gleaning insight into the human condition. Um, can I ask you how? this might instruct your fiction and your thinking about characters? Yeah, so after I got out of journalism, I retrained as family 
as a family mediator and, um, um, you know, spent a little while in that space, not, not a long time. I sort of passed through it and then, and then came on to, to writing again. I found it such a privilege to sit down with people who were going through a very difficult moment in their lives, which was, you know, marriage breakdown, the breakdown of a relationship, trying to make decisions about their children and their personal futures and to help them sort of clarify their feelings and their needs and what they needed to do. And I came to realise very quickly in that sort of work environment that everybody has a story and everybody has feelings that you actually have no sense of. So someone might come into a room, you've read the brief about them, you, you think you've got an understanding of what this person's situation is, and then that sort of that sort of human moment when you realise, oh, I've got no idea who you are by reading about you. And so what it gave me as a writer was the the understanding that, you know, all of us actually run deep, you know, still waters or not, we run deep. And you actually have to poke around and be patient and have an open ear and have an empathy to really understand the essence of a person, you know, and, and I learned to do that. I learned to be patient and to just let the story come. So I'm not sure if that makes sense, but that what I learned, that everybody has a story, everybody has big feelings, and um, you don't always see that on the surface, so be patient and try and go in further. You, you have said, I think, that you, you're not afraid of big feelings, big emotion, and that's what you want to get at as, yeah. as a fiction writer. Um, can, can you talk a little to that and, and why it's easier to get there through through fiction than, than I think it's it, uh, yeah I do like I do like big feelings you know if I go din- out to dinner with you I don't actually want to chat a lot about the weather I really want to you know talk about big stuff because I find and I've, I've used this word human connection a few times I'm aware of that but I feel that's how we connect you know we connect through big emotions not through um, small ones and, and we we're talking about vets and the war experience before I mean that's why that whole thing of mateship and you know bonds is forged because because there's big emotions when you're on a battlefield, you know. So I like big. I like looking at big feelings. And yeah, you can do those in factual journalism. Of course, you can. You know, you take real stories, and and you've done this. You know, you take real stories and you and you blow them out, and you sit with them, and you deliver that story. But in fiction, again, you've got that license to go as far as you want to go. You know, you're not hampered by what really happened and the limitations. So, yeah, I wanted to look at big feelings. I think I have done that. I think I have looked at big emotions. And um, fiction is a sort of a a safe and a free way in which to do that, I think. Um, Here in the After was released the same week as the last troops were pulled out of Afghanistan after 20 years. Um, that was another thing that made the book incredibly prescient, I think. And I imagine, you know, at least from a publicist's point of view, you know, a dream really. But how did you feel about releasing it into the world um, at a time when there was so much pain and so much anguish in that space around war and trauma and and coming home? Oh, yeah, coming home. Such a beautiful expression, isn't it? I um, I felt sick I felt really sick. So, yep, this had gone off. It was coming out. And I, um, I'm i old school enough to watch all this on television as opposed to on my laptop, and I sat there, you know, watching it on the big screen, you know, those scenes at the airport and, you know, the Taliban taking control and those women and children and those men falling. I just felt 
sick. I feel absolutely sick. So I can genuinely say there was not a minute in which I thought, great, I've hit the zeitgeist, great. I just felt so sad because I had sat in this space with these people, with Nat, and it was like, oh, gosh. And when I started writing this book and, you know, you get a few knockbacks during the, along the way, someone said to me, who, I don't think Australia's interested in Afghanistan. Like, who even remembers it anymore? Like, really? I think we, oh, no. And it was like, oh, okay. And it was like, so I sat there watching this footage going, well, no one's forgotten about Afghanistan today. You know, we know about Afghanistan. And if anything, uh, I thought, okay, uh, I was prescient, you know, when Nat started to talk early on in that book about what was it all for, did we, what was the point in going, I probably first wrote those sort of comments a few years ago. And these were the big questions around that week. These were the big questions. And when he, when I first started to put them into his mouth a few years ago, uh, I tempered myself. I thought, oh, hang on, people aren't saying this yet. You know, like, I better be careful, you know, respectful. And, yeah, there it was that, you know, Nat may as well have walked across the, you know, the news channel and and you know been interviewed because yeah they were the questions so I I I can't even say I had mixed feelings I had really sad feelings watching that. Marion I'm wondering if you're uneasy at all about the fact that you had written a fictional account that aligned so very closely as it happened and this wasn't your intent with what we were all seeing and I'm wondering why you think fiction matters in these real life moments of profound and seismic grief. Does any fiction matter? I mean, you know, does any fiction matter? And I would argue that, yes, storytelling matters and it's mattered since the beginning of time to tell our stories and to try and share our experiences and our beliefs and our aspirations through stories. So, no, if you are at Kabul Airport with your children, with your girl children and with your husband who's maybe served with, um, you know, the coalition forces trying to get out to save your life, does it matter that sitting in a bookshop in Australia there's a book about to people who have been affected by trauma. No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them. Of course it doesn't matter and I wouldn't imagine that it does. But to the collective understanding of what people might experience, does it matter? Yeah, it does. I think it's great. I think if you pick up that book and you go, shit, I've got no idea what that person beside me might want might have been through. I've got no idea what that person that I know is a refugee who's living in the next suburb has been through. Yeah, I think it can be an important tool to understanding. How long in gestation was this novel? Well, it was a few years, four years, a little bit more. I got a knockback very early on. Someone said to me, oh, you must show this book to, you know, I've got a great person for you to show this to. As a first-time naive writer, I showed it to an agent way too early, way too early <laughs> at this person's urging and got a very brutal knockback. So that threw my confidence. Oh, it's crap. I, I shouldn't have done it, you know. And then it took me a little minute to steady myself and have another go. So I learned a big lesson then, never show it until you're really quite happy with it. So, yeah, I'd say four years, about four years. Readers and other writers who are hopefully listening to this often want to know about process. And so how did you go about writing? What, what's, what's your discipline? Is there one? 
Um, yeah, there was. So there hadn't been. And I was like, you've mentioned, you know, former journalists before. I was, oh, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. I want to write a book. And then I had this light bulb moment uh, of, oh, if you want to write a book, you actually got to write it. Like, it, oh, I have to do the work if I want to, if I want to have this outcome. And that sounds really, you know, writing 101. But for me, it was quite a light bulb moment. So once I'd made the decision that I was going to do it, this idea had been blowing around in my head for a while. I became very disciplined, actually. I was really, really disciplined with myself. I cleared the space. I got up early every morning. Like, I love that, those early hours. So I'd get up at five. I'd sit down. It was hard. I mean, writing a first novel is hard, you know. it's. I'm used to deadlines. I'm used to having to produce. But actually writing something of your own heart was hard for me. So it took a while to get going and to get to a stage where I felt, okay, I know what I'm doing. Um, so, yeah, I'd work for those um you know, those first five hours, walk the dog. You know, when I was really on a run-up, I'd then come back to it. Um, I was very disciplined. And um, now you've done it, what, what next? Yeah, it was really funny. I said to a friend once, I'm going to write a book, and they looked at me and went, then what? And I was like, oh, I, well, I'm just going to write a book. That's what I'm going to do. Yes, now I've done it. Um, it makes me smile, that question, now what? But, yeah, I want to I want to try again, you know, so I've got a few little ideas of characters, not of a full story, but, yeah, I'm going to try and write another one. Enjoy it. Uh, I am enjoying it. I am enjoying having written a book finally, so thank you. Thanks a lot, Marion. That was fantastic. Marion Frith is the author of Here in the After, published by HarperCollins Australia. I'm Paul Daly and you've been listening to Book It In from Guardian Australia. This episode was produced by Jane Lee, Daniel Simo, Camilla Hannan and Alison Chan. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Melanie Tate. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you have a minute, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people interested in books to find us. We'll be back next week. Happy reading to Lynn. Today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 